0: We're continuing our march this morning through the gospel according to Matthew. Last time that we were in Matthew a few weeks ago, Pastor Scott preached on the three miracles that are found in Matthew 8, verses 1 through 17. He mentioned that in this, quote, section of Matthew, there are three episodes of miracles, then narrative. And so what does... What does Pastor Scott mean exactly by this section of Matthew? He means chapters 8 and 9, which is part of a larger section encompassing chapters 5 through 9. Why do we call this a section of Matthew? We're about eight chapters in now, obviously, and we haven't discussed this before. So very quickly, in your bulletin this morning, right, you have a little gift from me to you, a small insert that gives a high-level outline of the gospel according to Matthew. And I'm not going to walk you through it. I just want you to notice on that little... Uh, insert there, there are, uh, there's a prologue at the beginning, there's five sections, and then there's an epilogue, the last couple of verses, of the gospel according to Matthew. And it, as we've said multiple times during this sermon series, Matthew is the gospel to the Jews, and there are many reasons for why it is called that, and here's another one. Why might the gospel to the Jews have five distinct sections? Well, Matthew might have formulated his gospel account in this way to reflect the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or perhaps the Psalms. We, we made reference this past Wednesday night at Bible study that there are in fact five books of Psalms, and you'll see that as you read through the Psalms. Or perhaps another reason, you may also be aware that the Old Testament itself is composed of five major sections. There's law, history, wisdom, the major prophets, and the minor prophets. So it seems that Matthew is composing his account of Jesus' ministry in a manner that would be appealing to his Jewish audience. Trying to convince his Jewish readers that his account of Jesus' life And ministry is a new scripture on par with the scriptures with which they were already familiar. Anyway, I give that to you as a brief word of introduction. Something to think about later. Not now because I'm about to get to the sermon text in Matthew chapter 8. Now, that little tidbit about the structure of Matthew's gospel was free. The rest of what you're about to hear is going to cost you. Matthew chapter 8, picking up in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Here in Matthew's gospel, we find Jesus interacting with two persons in the crowd that was following him. So I want to deal with this crowd issue first. You may, not, you may or may not be aware that the Lord Jesus Christ was not very fond of crowds. Here we see, look again, verse 18. Jesus saw a crowd around him, and when he saw that, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So what's going on here? Now, we've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew... Specifically, you don't have to go there. Just follow along. Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. And we know why the crowds were coming to him at that time. We read at the end of Matthew chapter 4, large crowds followed him. Why? Because he was doing miracles teaching, proclaiming the gospel, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So the news spread about him throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. So after the miracles of chapter 4, Jesus sees the crowds gathering and he takes the opportunity to go up onto a mountain in Galilee and to teach. But here in chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel, after Jesus comes down from the mountain and after the miracles that Pastor Scott preached about last time at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8, Jesus chooses to escape the crowd by getting into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. That would be east, this direction. Now this latter approach is more typical of Jesus. Earlier, we didn't read, but John 6, in your bulletin, the Bread of Life Discourse, right? And and I was thinking about that text because I wanted you to see how Jesus commonly reacts when the crowds get too close. You remember, right, if you know John 6, when Jesus gets a crowd in the synagogue at Capernaum, he says, yeah, well, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have eternal life. when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? John 6, verse 60. We see here in Matthew 8 that Jesus has decided it is time for him to move on away from the crowds across the Sea of Galilee with his closest disciples. And on the way to the shore to get into the boat, he has a couple of interactions with those in the crowd. Now, if it's not clear to you what's going on in these interactions, let me just give you the bottom line up front. Right? That seems to be the thing in corporate war: bottom line up front. I get emails that say BLUF, and I had I'm like, what is BLUF? Bottom line up front. Here we go. Okay. Here in the accounts of these interactions between Jesus and some of those who were following him, here we see plainly what is called the cost of discipleship. I'm going to say that again. Here, as we go through in these accounts of these interactions between Jesus and some of those who were following Him, here we see plainly what is called the cost of discipleship. So as we're about to dive into these interactions this morning, I I want you to know this is not going to be your typical church growth strategy sermon like you're accustomed to hearing from this pulpit. That was a joke. That was really good, actually. But in all seriousness... This morning we have an opportunity to peer deeply into what Jesus says about what it costs to be his disciple. The truth is you don't hear much about this topic around evangelicalism. I would venture to say that in contrast to what is found here in Matthew 8 and Luke 9, which we will be in a few moments, what you hear most about is what you can get out of Christianity. And I'm not going to be bashful, there is much to be gained when you choose to follow the Christ. Jesus certainly did talk much about rewards. For example, just go back a chapter or two into the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm pretty sure that one hears relatively little about what it costs a person to be a Christian. And there is a cost, my dear friends. So what we're going to do here this morning is walk through each of these interactions. We're going to see what they mean for those who choose to call themselves Christians, and then we're going to wrap it up with some application for us as we leave here today. To walk out, out those doors, into a culture, into a world that is by no means friendly to us. Jesus says this in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Matthew 8, beginning in verse 19. Then a scribe came and said to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, this is Jesus referring to himself, of course, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Here we have a Jewish scribe. Now, he's one who was quite learned in the Jewish law and was on occasion a bit of a teacher himself back in Matthew 2. He's the kind of knowledgeable guy that King Herod gathered around himself when he wanted to know where the Jewish Messiah was to be born. And you see here that he, the scribe, addresses Jesus as teacher. Perhaps he's addressing Jesus with respect, you know, like one teacher to another kind of thing. We don't know. But let's assume the best about this guy. He expresses his desire to follow Jesus. By what motivation? Again, we don't know. Was it the miracles that Jesus was performing? Was it the profound teaching of the Sermon on the Mount? Perhaps the scribe is like the wandering Levite of Judges chapter 18. Perhaps he thinks he's found a better teacher than the one he had before. And so he's decided to change allegiances for some kind of gain. We don't know. But all the speculation is immaterial because we don't need to know. Matthew tells us what we need to know, and it is this. Matthew tells us Jesus' response to the scribe's excited declaration. Verse 19, look at it again, please. The scribe from the midst of the crowd says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 20, Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is a bit of an odd response, is it not? Whatever the scribe's motivation, Jesus takes no time at all to make sure that he, the scribe, knows there is no material gain in transferring any of his allegiances to the Christ. In fact, for someone like a Jewish scribe, there would definitely have been a significant loss. Being a Jewish scribe in the first century Judea would have been a cushy job. Many were members of the Jewish aristocracy, even the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Of course, Jesus would have known this. So Jesus assesses the situation. He looks at the man, and he gives the excitable scribe the straight dope. Friend, fellow teacher, I have nothing. I don't even have what the critters and the birds have. I have nowhere, nothing upon which to even lay my head. So don't come to me expecting to maintain your cushy, comfortable life. In fact, if you really want to follow me... You should expect to lose what you have. I mean, isn't that what Jesus is saying? Let's not spiritualize it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He comes to earth, He takes on human flesh, and He doesn't even own a home? Not even a shanty to call His own? You realize, right, that Jesus not only, listen, Jesus not only did not have a home of his own, he didn't even own the clothes on his back. You remember at the foot of the cross at Calvary. What were the soldiers doing as Jesus was hanging there, gasping for breath, suffering under the wrath of God for sinners? They were casting lots for his seamless tunic, John nineteen twenty three. He wasn't, Jesus wasn't even able to bequeath the clothes on his back to his mother upon his death. Literally, Jesus Christ had nothing. Jesus says, No, Mr. Scribe, do not follow me for material gain, for there will be none, not now nor even at my death. And at this point, the Geneva Study Bible has a note in the margin and it reads this. The true disciples of Christ must prepare themselves for all kinds of miseries. Move on to verse 21 in Matthew 8. Another of the disciples said to him, again, from the midst of the crowd, so these people are not bashful. Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me, and allow the dead to bury their own dead. A couple of details about this interaction that we have to address before we look at it overall. Please turn to Luke 9. Okay? Please turn to Luke 9. This is Luke's account of these interactions. Luke 9, to the very end of the chapter, specifically verse 59. Luke nine fifty nine, To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So first, we see that in contrast to the scribe, which you can see in verses 57 and 58, right above there, okay? In contrast to the scribe, this interaction is initiated by Jesus. Jesus, on his way to the seashore, he says to another person in the crowd, follow me. Second, it's unlikely this person's father was already dead. It is much more likely that this person's father was aged and preparations for his death were in process. So we need to understand that in the first century Jewish culture, taking care of the dead, especially dead parents, was an important and honorable tradition. Remember, first century Jewish culture was an honor-based culture. It was an honor-based based society. In our culture, wealth and status are the drivers. But not so in the ancient Near East and not so even in many Eastern cultures today. No, in Jesus' time, a man's honor among his family and his friends and his community was his true capital. And no man in Jesus' day wants to know be known in his community as the one who didn't give his father an honorable burial. But there may be something else here. So let's dig a little deeper. Third, what happens when a parent dies? We already talked about it just briefly, just a few moments ago. It's an inheritance, is it not? Got one right here. Yeah? Is it possible that, Lord, let me first go and bury my father, can be more accurately interpreted as, Lord, let me first go and collect my inheritance. And then I'll be set. And then I'll follow you. So what do we have here in this second interaction? One, we have a clear command from Jesus. Follow me. Two, we have a guy in the crowd who's torn. He hesitates to obey. Why? Tradition? Honor in the eyes of his family and his community? Little bit of future cash money? In the face of this hesitation, what does Jesus say? Verse 60 of Luke chapter 9, Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus is saying, leave the spiritually dead, that is your mother, your brother, those in your community, to bury the physically dead, your father, when he dies. That's what's being said there. Does this response from Jesus offend you? If it doesn't, sit tight. Give me a few minutes, okay? I'm working on it. I know one person by name, an acquaintance of mine literally, whose own father was a Methodist preacher. And this acquaintance of mine rejects Christianity to this day because of this response of Jesus to this guy in the crowd. He told me one time, a few years ago, he said, Steve, there's no way I can follow someone like that. Whose response to this guy, whose dad is dying, whose response is so callous. That, friends, is a son of Adam who willingly admits that he's been offended by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not offended by this statement then you haven't yet understood it. At least not as well as this preacher's kid acquaintance of mine understands it. The revered Baptist commentator John Gill writes this with respect to this statement. He says, quote, Lawful and decent responsibilities become sinful when they hinder greater duties. Luke 9 verse 61 Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here in Luke, we have a third similar interaction that we don't find in Matthew 8. The reason for Matthew not including it in his account may be because it may have been too reminiscent of Elijah's call to Elisha in 1 Kings 19. Okay, I leave that to you for another homework look up. Right? Matthew's exclusion of this interaction is not the point. The point is this. Listen, please. It is possible that this third guy heard Jesus say to the second guy, follow me. And this third guy says, well, I'd like to get in on this action. But I got some people back in town that I'd like to say goodbye to first. So Lord, can you just hang out right here till I get back? You're not busy, right? And Jesus' response here again is designed to be clear and offensive. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now most of us don't live in a culture where agricultural references carry the weight as they would have for Jesus' first century Judean audience. So I'm going to give you a brief illustration that may hit home just a little bit more to help us to understand. Let's say you're on a gurney. And you're being wheeled into the operating room and you're about to have gallbladder removed or some other relatively serious procedure where the surgeon is going to use a scalpel to cut into your flesh near a bunch of vital organs inside your body that I assume you need to stay intact. Such that if one of those vital organs near your gallbladder accidentally gets nicked and you bleed out and die. Question, how concerned are you that your surgeon makes his cut with that razor-sharp scalpel straight where he or she wants to make it? How would you feel about having someone come into the OR right in the middle of the incision and go, Hey, doc, how's your day going? That's not what you want. You want, you need that surgeon to be laser focused on what she's doing and where she's going, don't you? That's what Jesus is talking about here. In an economy, listen, where if the farming is not done right, and if the farming is not done well, then people starve to death. What is needed from the farmer... Jesus says, is singular focus on what he's doing and where he's going. And that's what Jesus demands of those who follow him. Again, this guy in the crowd says he wants to take a little time to go and say goodbye to his friends and family. And Jesus will not have it. Why not? Because Jesus, he's so wise. He knows what happens. He knows that not everybody in this guy's house is going to be on board with his decision to, to what? To leave everything, like the other disciples had done. To leave everyone behind. To follow an itinerant Galilean preacher, miracle worker with a messianic complex. Dude, are you crazy? Clean yourself up, finish your shift down there, beating out the chaff, and let's hit the Capernaum Cantina. That's what he's going to hear. And after some time back in his hometown, the zeal to follow the Galilean miracle worker will wane, and all will be back to normal, and Jesus won't have it. Jesus demands a laser focus on him. Verse 62, look at it again. Jesus said to the temporary zealot, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What are we to make of all this? So let's talk about some implications and applications. Let's start with our evangelism. You know, when we talk to other people about how they ought to believe on Jesus Christ and so be saved. That's not wrong language for sure. And it's not wrong at all to tell people about the rewards of salvation. For there are many, and they are eternal, and they are wonderful. But here's a question for you. Have you ever tried to talk somebody out of following Jesus Christ? Jesus did that occasionally. Jen and I have the privilege of doing premarital counseling with some very lovely couples who are, by God's grace, still married and thriving. And I joke that the way I like to do premarital counseling is that I do everything in my power to talk this young guy and this young gal out of getting married. Why? Because if you give them every reason to not get married and at the end of that process they still want to get married, guess what? You got something. Where did I get this idea Jesus. Given this section of Matthew's and Luke's gospel accounts, these interactions between the loving Savior and some guys in the crowd, what do we learn? At the very least, we learn that Jesus will not, listen please, Jesus will not lower the bar on his expectations for discipleship for anyone. Thank you, Rudy. And speaking of gospel, maybe I missed it, but I don't remember reading it in this passage anywhere. Is it there? Three interactions with three different people in the midst of a crowd and no gospel presentation. Think about that over lunch today. Friends, here's a question for you to think about. When we talk about Jesus, when we talk about the kingdom of the heavens, as Matthew would call it, are we talking about the rewards and shorting the discussion on the cost when we talk to unbelievers? Especially, especially the really zealous ones. Let's bring it closer to home. What about those of us on the inside, the professing Christians? I ask you, dear believer, has following the Christ cost you anything yet? Please turn with me to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Pastor Scott read it earlier. I want to read it again because I need you to see something there in Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. The preacher writes this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can stop there, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Now, as we consider the cost of discipleship for our own lives, I want you to focus with me on verse 1. Again, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, in this context, the preacher is referring to all those people that he was talking about in Hebrews chapter 11. But here is where I want you to focus. He also says, let us also, look at it, let us also lay aside every weight And sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Every weight and sin. Now, is there one thing here or two? I think that if you don't read closely, like if you're reading, you're doing your devotional reading, you you might assume that the weight being spoken of here is a synonym for the sin that follows. And I appreciate the English Standard Version, which I read from here, because the ESV translators placed a comma after the word weight. Why? They're drawing a distinction between weight and sin. And that's right. There are two categories of things there are weights, and there are sins that must be laid aside as we run this race that is set before us. In the Greek, there's an and there. That's how I know there's two. And do you see that word "weight" there in verse 1? It's a very interesting word. The New American Standard Version calls it an encumbrance, right? Kind of an old word. It's only used once here in the New Testament. And it's only used three times in the Greek Old Testament, at least as I was able to find and I don't have time this morning we're already running long and I know that but I don't have time this morning to go into detail if you'd like to discuss the details afterward just see me and I'm happy to talk about it okay but this word that the preacher of Hebrews uses here in chapter 12 verse 1 translated as weight or obstacle or encumbrance has a connotation listen of a bent arm as in a bent arm that is holding something something valuable Like a small child, or a woman, or a royal robe that shouldn't touch the dusty floor. What's the point? The point is this. When we are considering the things in our lives that hinder our total commitment to Jesus Christ, the things that blur our laser focus, we must consider more than our besetting sins not less than, okay? We must be killing our sins by the Spirit of God, Romans 8.13. And I trust that I don't have to labor long on this particular point in this church this morning. Yes, our sins and our flesh must be killed day by day. But we also have to come, please, we have to come to realize that it's not just our sins that might hinder us from total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be that some of the things that we hold close to us in the clutch of our crooked arms may be hindering us. And isn't this what we've seen in the text this morning? In the first case, the excitable scribe, what was in the way? Answer, material loss. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do you know who said that? Jim Elliott, a man who heard about a group of Ecuadorian people, indigenous people, considered to be violent and dangerous to outsiders, a man who passed up a more reasonable position in local youth ministry. This same Jim Elliott said, missionaries are human folks, listen, just doing what they are asked, simply a bunch of nobodies, small n, trying to exalt somebody, capital S. This same Jim Elliot lost his life in that missionary endeavor at the age of 28. He lost everything to gain everything. And that's the trade, isn't it? Now I'm not saying that the only way to serve the kingdom of Christ is by selling all your worldly possessions. Although Jesus did say that to a rich young ruler one time. What I am saying is that there is a cost to the Christian life. What about the second guy in the crowd? Why does he hesitate? Answer, again, tradition. This is a tough one. I was witnessing to a person once at the lab up the street and she knew exactly what I was doing and where I was going with the conversation. I wasn't the first Protestant she had met and she was a Catholic. And at one point in the conversation, she stopped me and said, Steve, I know where you're headed, but I'm never going to believe anything different from what I believe right now on my mom's deathbed. She made me promise that I would never leave the Roman Catholic Church and I intend to keep that promise. End quote. That, my friends, is Tradition, capital T. And although I am not making any determination on the state of that woman's soul, I just want you to know that such traditions do, in fact, consign many people to an eternal hell. That seems to have been the case for the Pharisees, I think. What else, why else did the second guy hesitate? Answer: Honor. Another tough one, friends. Honor the desire to be something in the eyes of those around you. Now, I'm not going to go into detail because enough of you know the details. But I will admit, right? I will admit from behind this pulpit that this is near the top of my list of struggles. When you think you're somebody, but in reality, the best self-view is to have is that you're nobody. And every day is a battle for contentment and joy and the God-given ability to rejoice when others around you are rejoicing. And every day I have to remind myself that I'm just a slave. I'm just a slave to a great and good and gracious master. Rather than thinking that I'm somebody, I should just be telling myself, Lord Jesus, where you want me to go, I'll go. Why else did the second guy hesitate? Answer, cold, hard cash. Did we not just come through the Sermon on the Mount? Didn't Jesus say, Only the super doubly spiritual among you can serve two masters? Is that what he said? No. Matthew 6:24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. What about the third guy, Luke 9? What did Jesus call him to forsake? Answer, family, friends, comfort. Have you ever been forced by Jesus Christ to give up a comfort so that you could follow your Lord more closely? Listen. None of these things, family, friends, honor, money, None of them is inherently wrong or evil. In fact, in so many ways, these are blessings from the Lord. But when blessings become burdens, blessings become burdens when we turn them into idols. Blessings become burdens when we turn them into idols. And when our blessings become burdens, the Bible says, Hebrews 12 verse 1, we must lay them aside. This is the call for all of us this morning. As I wrap up, myself included, we must be willing to joyfully lay aside these things we hold so closely right here in the bend of our arms so that we can follow Christ more closely. Let me give you one more example. You heard the weekly one another this morning, right? We try to give some practical advice week by week, for how to live these out with those around us, especially those in the household of God. And one of the weekly one another's is to bear one another's burdens. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. You know, it's really hard to bear another's burden when our arms are full of the burdens that weigh us down. As I wrapped up this morning... Look with me briefly at the title of the sermon, if you would, in your bulletin. I was going to call the sermon, Kill the Canaanites, Remove the High Places. I went with the gentler, shortened title for sermon audio. As you're reading through the Old Testament, have you ever wondered why the Israelites were commanded by God to kill all the Canaanites? Or as you're reading through Kings and Chronicles, did you ever wonder why they repeatedly say that the kings of Israel and Judah, quote, did not remove all the high places? These are not throwaway phrases. God is trying to teach us something. He is calling us to examine it all. To cleanse it all. To not leave one stone unturned. Like King Hezekiah in 1 Kings 18, which we read. God is calling us to remove the high places and break down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles. It's time to remove the high places, brothers and sisters. What's holding you back? What's weighing you down? Do you have the courage to go to the trusted believers closest to you and ask them what they think your burdens are. The call this morning today and every day is to forsake all and follow Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord and King. The rewards are very great. The rewards are eternal. Not the least of which, listen, is the forgiveness of your sins and escape from wrath of a holy and righteous God. The rewards are very great, but the cost is everything. In just a few moments, we're going to sing together the wonderful cross. The wonderful cross, oh oh, the wonderful cross, how's it go? Bids me come and die. Did the preacher tell you when you became a Christian, when you got baptized, that you signed up to die? Paul writes this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, listen, who loved me and gave himself for me. Like Peter on the Sea of Galilee, we gotta get out of this boat, we gotta get out of our comfort and go to where Jesus is, on the water, outside the city. And like the woman in the Gospels, with the alabaster flask, are we willing to spill all of our valuables for the glory of Jesus Christ? Friends, the Son of God, the King of Glory, came into the world He took on human flesh. He lived a life in the dust of Canaan. He had nothing, not even owning the clothes on his back. He had, listen, he had nothing. This is where we end. He had nothing so that you and I would be convinced that we have nothing but him. And he is enough. You will not be disappointed. Yes, the wonderful cross bids us come and die. But it is at this same wonderful cross where we find that we might truly live. Let's pray.